Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. Welcome to the Moth Podcast. I'm Dan Kennedy. All stories on the Moth are personal, and they're true, as remembered by the storyteller. And these stories can be big or small, but they have to have happened to you. And sometimes these personal experiences involve really well-known moments in history. And we get this, this treat, this rare look at what a landmark time felt like, straight from the mouth of someone who actually lived through the moment. This week, we're celebrating Veterans Day and the life and legacy of our beloved storyteller and veteran Rick Carrier. Rick passed away in 2016, but he told a few stories at the Moth about the years he spent in the Army. Rick was drafted for World War II shortly after his 18th birthday. Twelve months later, he was storming the beaches of Normandy as part of the first wave of D-Day. Rick told this story about D-Day at a main stage here in New York City, where the theme of the night was blood, toil, tears, and sweat, stories of World War II. He was 89 years old the night he took the Moth stage, and he was wearing his Army greens. Here's Rick Carrier, live at the Moth. This uniform I'm wearing, I wore when I was 18 years old. didn't have all the schmuck on it. It was just plain. And all this stuff came, what happened to my life. Every one of these, these things on me, I paid dearly for. I was drafted at 18, at Satan. that's when I got this uniform. I grew up in the Depression. My dad was broke, and everybody was broke. And everybody was in the Army. And I was in school, and I got drafted. Bingo, away I went. I told him, number one, that I was an expert in dynamite, which I was. I, I learned how to do that in the mines in, in Pennsylvania. The other thing I could do quite well would be fix things. The other thing I could do quite well, I could draw. My dad was a draftsman. I learned how to do it. The other good thing I could do would play hooky. <laughs> <laughs> Another good thing I could do as an expert rifle shot and pistol shot. So all those things came into play. They looked at me and said, dynamite, rifle, what the hell are you? <laughs> So they, I said, no, well, I want to be in the engineers. They said, you're in the engineers. They sent me into uh, engineers, and that was the beginning of my life. I went out in a rifle range, and the first day I put five bullets right through the black. They said, hey, what? Come back. Here's a clip. Do it again. So I put, what, nine of them in there. The guy said, listen, we would like you to be an instructor. So I told my dad about that. I hit all the bullseyes, and they want me to make an instructor. I, there was a pause. He said, you dumb son of a bitch. If I was there, I'd kick your ass from one end of that camp to the other. If you keep that up, you'll wind up a sniper. And snipers are the first ones to get shot. So just stay in and play with dynamite, kid. 
So here I am. The whistle blows. And now I'm on, a, on a, the B.A. Barnett. This is June 6th, the night of June 6th, 1944. And we're now in our barracks area in, in bunks with all these troops, the whole regiment, our whole regiment. Everybody in it was loaded down with weapons, guns, all our ammunition and everything else. And the whistle blowed, and it's time to get out and get onto the boats and move in to make the attack onto Normandy. We've been living in this, these uniforms for about three days and carrying all of our guns and all of our equipment and everything you can think of. So up we get, and we move out on the deck, the thing, very silently. We up on the deck, wait, and we hit with a rainstorm. The water came down on us like a fire hose. But just pouring it right on us. Every one of us were drenched. We're 50 miles from shore, and the boat was pitching from starboard to port, starboard to port, starboard to port. And on the side of the boat were these nets, cargo nets, with big knots on them, and they were all soaking wet. And below them, about 40 feet below on the edge of the, from the edge of the ship, these, these wooden boats called Higgins boats, and they hold up to 70 people, and they were the assault craft. We had to get in them. Now, what we had to do, get down one at a time, two guys right behind you, and when you got down to the edge of the boat, you'd release. <laughs> you'd think you were going to get in the water, but hands would grab you and put you in. So but they told you, you never, never, never grasp the knots. See, if you grasp the knots, you'll get into trouble. And that we saw somebody that grabbed the knots when it hit the side of the boat. He screamed and opened his fingers and dropped right down, right to the bottom with all that equipment on, just like that, gone. So that's the first thing you see when you're 18. <laughs> wow, I mean, okay, this is the beginning of the war. And we know we're going into the war. And we ended the boat. I was in the first rank going in. First wave, and behind us was second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh, all the way back. And on another side, bigger boats had a bulldozer and road equipment and stuff like that that's coming in. We finally got out, and we moved up to a point where they, we meet our destroyer, Corey, and he is going to lead us in to the beach. And the Higgins boat just flattened out and it formed a single line, and we're now moving in towards the beach in Normandy. An airplane flew in and started laying a smoke screen in front of us. The quarry began to open up, and he was firing. He had a target of an artillery base, and he, was, he fired about 100 rounds into that. Suddenly, the, the, the plane gets hit with black, and, and it, it blows, and it drops, and it crashes. No more smoke. So we grab our breath. Because we're now moving out into an open sea and no protection at all. And the thing in front of us is the quarry. And up in the north end, there was a, a battery up there called San Magoof. And it had three guns, big rifles, and they're 300-pound shots. So the first thing they do is shoot one thought, boom, second one, boom, third one, boom. And we could hear the shells whistling right overhead. And the first one landed, the second one came in and hit one of the boats by behind us, and it just blew up on the spot, just a complete shot. Everything completely busted. And the third shot hit the quarry right in the midship, and she split in half, and up this went to stern, and up went the bow, and and she flattened out. We couldn't go in without an escort, because if we did, it, everything would be a screw-up. So we, so we started drifting in the current, the whole big line of it, down, we down about 1,000 yards, and then suddenly a new destroyer came up, so it took us in, and then we went in and hit the beach. There was all kinds of fire coming down, and the, the place was being smashed with mortars. And I went off the side of it, and my leg got caught in, a, in the wire on the front door. It twisted my leg, and I heard poop, pop, bang. Those were the tendons in my knee. 
and I went down into the water and I shook my leg out. Remember, at 19 or 20, things heal quick. <laughs> so I shook my leg and, and, and then pain went away and it sort of got back in. And then I remember my grandmother said, get rid of the eagle and get rid of the ram and you, if you want to survive this war, she said, you've got to become the spirit of the snake. The snake can always see what's coming at him and you can always get and grab him before they grab you. So, man, I said, snake I am. I went down, I, I got on the sand, and I started clawing like this, and, and I turned around and looked back at, at the, 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 what it was, and I could see back at the, on the horizon, it was now daylight, and I could see these ships, oh, there's thousands of ships back there, and I'm clawing to sand, and I said, holy God, kid, you don't, this is a one-way ticket. You ain't gonna go anyplace. This is the where you're gonna stay, so get with it. And I thought to myself at that moment, man, I wish the hell I was a mole that I could get under the sand and crawl forward. But I had all this stuff on me and I had to get out because my first rank was I had three jobs to do. The first job was blinds, booby traps, and explosives. The first job we had to do was to blow up all the stakes out there. The whole beach was covered with stakes. We had mines on the top, booby trapped, and also they had what they call can openers there that would hit the bottom of the boat and tear them up. So it wouldn't take us long because all of us, we had a whole company of us going up, blowing those up. And then behind them, they had these, these hedgehogs. There, there were steel, you've probably seen pictures of them. We had to blow those up. And when they, we, they were all blown up, the bulldozers came and pushed them aside. Each one of us was carrying these 26-pound bags of tetratol. And I had a big reel, like a cowboy, around my shoulder, which is a primer cord. And we went up the seawall, which is big concrete thing. And there were bunkers in all of it. And the 4th Division, which had already gotten in there, they were all dug in under, underneath it to get away from the bombs. And General Roosevelt was walking along, hitting them on the helmet, and said, look, we were supposed to go in 1,000 feet up, but we're here. This is where the war starts. So these guys were moving out of, out of the ground, and he was standing, and with all that mortar fire coming down. You're there, you're glancing at that, and you're digging into, and you're getting into holes and everything. And the noise was just absolutely deafening, because I was digging on my face was down in the sand, I was dragging my nose in it, and my face was in it, my eyes were in it. So we got in and put more dino all over every sack in and underneath the seawall. The sergeant major said, come on, Carrie, you're the one that lights the fuse. Get up here, you're good at that. So everybody gets out and I'm down there. I had seven seconds to get out of there. I want to tell you, I made time. I <laughs> but when I got away from it, suddenly, boom, and the big noise of the war around us just disappeared, just one sound, and concrete chunks were flying around. My next stage was mines. And, up, and Roosevelt was leading the 4th Division. He was in charge of it. And I want to tell you, all that stuff, I had to go to the John. Bad. Because <laughs> the bad food on the, on, the, on the quarry. So I went up and I dropped my pants. And, ah, ah, oh, man. Yeah. And then I hear this voice, Jeannie! And I look up, and General Roosevelt's pointing his cane at me. He said, you the one that's going to take us through the minefield? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I want to see what it looks like. Get your ass up here and show it to me. So I pulled my pants on. I said, and besides, I need a drink of water. Give me your canteen, would you, sir? She said, so, Corporal. I, so I said, yes, sir. So I reached back, and I had two canteens. One water, and another had the special medicine for if we got screwed up, we were to use it. 
So I tossed it to him, and I didn't know which can it was. And he, op he opened it up and took a slug. He went, one, one swallow, two swallows, three swallows, four swallows. <laughs> and he tossed it to me. He said, Corporal, you keep carrying a canteen like that, you're going to make a general, and I want you in my command. <laughs> That canteen had 100% straight rye whiskey, old overhaul. <laughs> so up to, the, up to the sand dune it was. It was a grand dune, and we crawled up to that, and on top of it was this barbed wire, and all the mines were in there, and a sign said, Octung Mining. And in the wire had been a skeleton. Somebody, somewhere, a long time ago, crawled in there, and the Germans just left them there. Scare anybody. Scared me, I tell you that. So anyway, Roosevelt said, look down there in the water. There was a paratrooper lying there with a parachute out in front of him, dead. Roosevelt said, Corporal, do you know why that paratrooper's died? I said, yeah, I came in and he landed and he couldn't get out of the harness. He said, well, that's part of it. But why, why did he come here? Why, did, why are you here? Why am I here? Why are everybody here? I said, we're here to kick the ass of the Nazis. And he said, that's right. But what else, what else, what are you doing when you do that? He said, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're giving the freedom back to the French people those bastards stole from them. That's what you're doing, see. That's why you want to stay alive. Do that in this war, and you'll be a hell of a lot better off for it. So he said, now, now get back, go down, get your guys, and show us through the minefield. We went through the minefield, lined up, fingers to fingers, flat. 18 of us went through the minefields, and we made paths through it. Three paths through the mines, marking them with the big teller mines with a white flag, a little rag on the top, and uh, the bouncing Bettys, the ones that would shoot up full ball bearings, there would be a yellow one. So we did that in a zigzag so that the, the infantry could walk straight through the minefield. All the mines are still alive, but they got a pathway to it. And so the infantry did. I could see them right away forming up when we finished. And I, and I turned around and head down the beach. And before I got to halfway down, a, a mortar shell landed, tossed me right on my ass and threw me forward. And on the edge of this, this, this seawall was a, an embutment. And my helmet came off and went down and hit in it. And the helmet rolled up and pushed my front teeth right back against my roof of my mouth. And also, a small piece of shrapnel had banged off the helmet and tore in the, this hole in my head. So that was squirting blood, and I stood it up, and I grabbed some tar and pulled my teeth back in. And I headed back down to, to, the, to the headquarters, headquarters, which was taken up in the big the bunker that was the one defending this beach. And our colonel was in there, and he said, Carrier, he said, you did a good job today up there. I see everything's done that you said you'd do. He said, but I know you, you're, you're a draftsman. I got news for you. He said, the War Department wants to get drawings of all these bunkers, every one of them. And then after you get the drawings done, we want you to blow them up and then do other drawings and see how they were made. I said, right up my alley. <laughs> Thank you. That was Rick Carrier. Rick went on to fight at the front lines of five major European battles, including the Battle of the Bulge, the Remagen Bridge, and Central Germany. On his 20th birthday, April 10, 1945, 
While scouting for military supplies, he accidentally discovered the Buchenwald concentration camp. The following day, Rick was with Patton's Third Army when they liberated the camp and brought freedom to thousands of prisoners, including 750 orphaned boys. After the show, Rick sat down with his son, Alan, to talk more about his experiences. Rick was a real Renaissance man and quite a character, and we just wanted to let our listeners get to know Rick a little better. Here's Rick talking about his battle naps, which was a technique that he used for his entire life. How long did it go before you took your first few minutes of sleep after the invasion? Oh, I didn't at all. No, no, for the first day. Now, what we did was called battle naps. And I, I was doing them yesterday. You'd sit down in a chair and lean back wherever you were. So you had to concentrate on it so that you shut your mind down and then just lean forward until you start simple, easy, cycled breaths. One, two, three, four. By the time you get to the fifth one, you'd be in those just super. And your body now is relaxing and it's recovering. When you relax, it recovers if your tension won't. So just five minutes like that, 15 minutes, and then when you wake up, you wake up and you got a shot back and you're back again. After his deployment ended, Rick stuck around Paris to study art at Le Col de Beau Arts. After your experience during the wartime, how did it feel to be able to go to art school in Paris? It was one of the most beautiful things that could have happened to me after the war because all the big, heavy things is over. It was over. And I was there, and I had a pocket full of money, and I, and I was going to school, and I had freedom of the city. Every place I went in my uniform, it was free. I'd go into this club, I could sit down, and the French would not accept a dime from me. For a long time, Rick didn't talk about his experiences during the war because they were too painful for him to relive and too shocking for those around him. It wasn't until recently that I, I opened up on it. And I think it was, uh, where it was, it was the first time I said, talked about it. I, when, 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 did you, when did I start to open up about this, Alan? Oh, within the last five years or so. I think yeah. once you hit like 84, 85, you realize that you, you don't have that many years left. Even if you live to be 100, right. you know, that's only like 10 years. Right. You know, so it's better tell the stories now, otherwise uh, forever hold your peace. Absolutely. And that's why I'm doing it. Not for that only alone, but it's also... Like last night when I was telling that, I was living that scene again, and I saw every... See, the way I've, I've learned to do, I've learned how to draw out of my subconscious mind. The subconscious mind has all the visions of what I did, but the conscious mind can't pull them up. If I tried to remember any of this stuff, it would go away. I couldn't see it. I'd see a little fragment of it. But when my subconscious got it and I loosen it and it starts feeding me and stuff, it feeds me the whole reel. Because once the scene is coming out of me, the whole scene's in it. Well, I, I thank you so much for, for coming. And I think it was a wonderful event and your participation really made me happy. I was so happy to hear you say these things. And thank you so much. Thank you. Give me your hand. And let's, give a, let's, let's take three seconds for silent thoughts and prayers. Just three seconds. Just three seconds. Thank you. That was Rick Carrier. After studying in Paris, Rick went on to work as a graphic artist, writer, filmmaker, and environmental activist, raising awareness for the then-endangered bald eagle. He even convinced President Reagan to declare June 20th Bald Eagle Day, which is still recognized by most states. 
Rick also loved to dance with his partner, Lynn. He returned to Normandy for the 70th anniversary of D-Day, and in 2012, he and Lynn traveled to visit Buchenwald and participate in the March of the Living. Rick was a recipient of the prestigious French Legion of Honor Award, and he received quite a long-standing ovation both times he told stories at the Moth. Rick passed away in 2016 at the age of 91. To read some of the poems Rick wrote and to see photos of him on the Moth stage in uniform, just go to our website, themoth.org. And to close this week's episode, all of us here at The Moth want to thank Rick and all of our veterans for their service and their sacrifice. And to everyone listening today, we hope you have a story-worthy week. Dan Kennedy is the author of Loser Goes First, Rock On, and American Spirit. He's also a regular host and storyteller with The Moth. Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.